Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Today's episode of The Fort is brought to you by none other than Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm. But beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Today, I'm going to be talking about a word that I think is a stigma in our industry. Um, It's something that I've been passionate about talking about because I think it's important and I think it's oftentimes very misrepresented in our industry but that word is fees. And so today I'm going to really try and talk about, you know, how I think about fees, how that ultimately impacts an organization and the structure of the organization and ultimately uh, drives kind of incentives. You know, a lot of what I will talk about today is nuance. Uh, Everything has nuance. And a lot of it depends on the goals that you've set for yourself and for your business. So you know, this is not a one lesson that that matches everybody's uh, different experiences, but it's it's comes from our experience. But our experience has been built by listening to a lot of great companies, a lot of general partners, a lot of um, operating companies in the real estate private equity space. And so, again, a lot of this is nuanced to where you are in your journey and in your business, and ultimately what your goals are for your business. Some people want to grow a very large business. Some people want to uh, remain a small, lean business. Neither of those are right or wrong, uh, but take from today's episode kind of what matches up with where you are and maybe where you're headed. So, you know, one misconception that, you know, I read a lot about and is talked about is that, you know, GPs that charge fees and make a profit at their operating business is, is kind of seen as this bad thing that, you know, the amount that you charge should almost like leave your operating business at a break-even standpoint and that anything above that that would make a GP's opco profitable uh, is kind of a bad thing. And so, you know, I would start by just saying who would want to invest in a company or any company for that matter that that wasn't profitable? You know, in every other industry, uh, the operating businesses that make products, which again, a, a real estate GP's product are the investments and the assets they make that they offer to investors. Um, but if you took a you know consumer product like a t-shirt company or you know a hat company, you would want to invest in a company that's very profitable. And so looking at a GP that is making profit off of fees as kind of this bad thing, you know, I'd really ask yourself, do you want to invest in in companies that that aren't profitable and don't strive for profit? Profit leads to a lot of great things that a business can do. 
that over the long term, you know, I'm talking decades, not, you know, years, proved to be very sustainable and proved to be uh, make the company more profitable, which ultimately should make the LP more profitable. Somebody once said to me, uh, I think on Twitter, you know, I'd rather the GP charge less fees, therefore my return can go up. Well, I would just challenge that and say, you know, that might be an artificially high return, but it's not sustainable from my perspective and not the right way to think about it. Any GP that is doing that is basically offering a discount to LPs that likely isn't sustainable over the long term if they plan on growing a larger uh, company. You know, over the long term, again, for me as somebody that's thinking in decades, not years, and when you look at the best performing GPs, irrespective of their fee structures, they they consistently provide high returns. And I would make an argument that over a long period of time, the fees that a GP charges, whether they're higher than you like or lower than you like, are really irrespectable, irrespective of the outcome long term. So, you know, it, it should end up being a blip on the radar if you invest with somebody over 10, 20, 30, 30 years. So I'll say now that there are businesses that make a lot of money off fees and their returns don't match up. There will always be those companies, but that's not the type of business I'm talking about today. I'm talking about companies that do both. They charge market fees and they also get great returns. I will add, and it's not for me to answer, there is a reason why even the top fee generating companies, irrespective of returns, still truck on. There is a market, obviously. There's also likely other benefits to investing with these businesses that might not be so black and white to someone reading a headline. For example, sidecar opportunities or SPVs that can give special access to investors. Those SPVs and, and side deals and things that you you know have access to and become a part of might have higher returns in the main fund. So there's lots of reasons why these top companies, irrespective of their fees, continue to truck on because there's obviously a market. And, you know, I would question any GP that is charging lots of fees and their returns aren't matching up. You know, what's behind all that? Because it's not so black and white and each company has, you know, different incentives, different long-term goals, different investors, and they're set up differently. And there's not any one right way. But for today, I'm really trying to talk about the companies that charge market, have built wonderful organizations and still maintain high returns over a long period of time not just one deal here and there, but over a long period of time. So before we get into it all, let's just talk about what are the benefits of a profitable company? You know, today we're talking about uh, GPs or opcos of real estate companies, but any company in general. When you're profitable, I think the best, the best thing that you can do is you can hire better talent and pay them what they're worth. You know, at the end of the day, businesses are people. And the better talent that you can hire and the better that you can pay them, that should result in better outcomes. You know, really smart people and really talented people are capable of doing a lot of things that ultimately should end up at the bottom line. You can invest in business operation expansion. You can reinvest in software and technology. You can invest in resources that provide better data to make decisions. You can invest in resources that help you, you know, travel and meet new people and open up new opportunities. You can reinvest in processes or systems that can become more efficient. But with profit, you have more money to invest in the business, which ultimately should lead to positive outcomes. 
you know, a profitable GP over a long period of time has something going right for itself and it likely lowers the cost of capital. So when a, when a GP is profitable and they go to borrow money and they've built a better organization, they can often borrow at lower limits or at lower interest rates and better terms than somebody that's not. So, you know, profit might be showing up at the bottom line based on their cost of capital. They're often able to lower OPEX as they scale and build better relationships with their vendors. So as the company gets larger and more profitable, they're all they're making better deals with the vendors that operate these assets and that touch the assets. And that ultimately shows at the bottom line. Again, a great organization has a lot of tools with which they can increase value and ultimately increase profit, not only at the opco level, but at the asset level, which is where a lot of these LPs are investing. And then over the long term, you know, we haven't seen one in a long time. We, we went through COVID, but a profitable business and a healthy business can weather storms and be around for the long term. You know, I'd argue a lot of the companies that are not treating their Opco as a profitable business are going to experience a lot of challenges when there's a storm in front of them that they're going to need resources and capital to get through. And if they're not profitable to begin with, it's just going to magnify that. And so... If I'm investing with a GP and I would and I, you know, I really look at this as, you know, show me your long term track record, but tell me more about how you can weather a storm. And if your business isn't profitable, it's very it's very likely that you're going to have much less resources with which to depend on when you're going to need them most. So a positive bottom line shows that the company is earning more than it's spending, which is a good sign that the company will remain successful. This is useful information for investors looking for positive opportunities and company leadership hoping to increase overall revenue. Young companies may not show high profits as, as they begin their operations, but as a business develops a more focused operating model, it can begin to earn higher profits, which they should. GPs that don't charge or reduce fees are hurting their opco in the long run. Imagine if any other company, we'll go back to a t-shirt company, didn't charge or offered a discount year round for their services or products. So they sold their t-shirts, you know, at a discount. That wouldn't be a very good business in the long term. There would not be profits to reinvest in the company to make it better. And it sounds almost crazy when you think about it that way. But when it comes to a GP or an opco, it's expected, you know, by some people that that would be the case. And I'm just, again, saying for the hundredth time, that a GP that is uh, operating profitably is likely the one that you want to get behind over the long term. And again, when I say long term, I'm talking about decades. Not everybody's been around for decades, so we can't measure everybody that way. But I would tell you the ones that are focused on that early on have a much better chance of survival. Um, in PE, there's the opco, and then there are the assets themselves. They're, and the way I look at them, they're two different things. You need an opco, which charges fees to the assets in order to operate them. And then on the asset side, you have the ability to earn through returns and for a GP through promote. But they're two different things. You know, a lot of folks get stuck in this idea that, um, you know, we'll run our opco at a break even or a loss and we'll pay for all of those services through the promote when we're successful. And I would argue that by paying for the you know the operating company out of the promote you're basically another way of putting it is um you're getting paid back for all the free discounted hours of work that you did over the years by 
a promote that has no guarantee, but should be seen as a performance fee or almost like a bonus. And so, again, to say it more clearly, if you're paying yourself out of the your GNA out of the promote, and that is your excuse, you are essentially saying, I'm going to do either free labor or discounted labor for a long time. And then I'm going to pay myself back with my performance bonus down the road, which isn't guaranteed. That kind of seems crazy to me. So the opco, you know, for, for real estate GPs needs to be looked at as one business. And then the assets and their performance needs to be looked at as a separate business. Now, what you hope is that the opco does an amazing job, which would mean that the assets are doing an amazing job, but they should be looked at differently. They should not be looked at as all in one. And what I what I hear from a lot of earlier GPs is that, well, we charge less fees, you know, which gets us higher returns. And then any kind of anything that we're in the red on, we'll pay ourselves back out of the promote. And I just look at that as that might work for you, but the promote's no guarantee and your operating company needs to be paid for out of the assets or don't provide those services outsource them to somebody that you're going to pay so that you're not offering kind of free or discounted labor to the assets over a long period of time, which I talked about earlier, I just don't think is sustainable. So when you're looking at the structure of an organization, again, this is where I started, there's nuance depending on where you are in your journey. You know, somebody that's just getting started or has a small staff might choose to charge fees or do things differently in the hope that they can build a track record and one day get to that point. That's totally fine. Fort did that. I mean, I'll be the first to sit here and say a lot of the first deals I did, I didn't really charge any fees. I didn't even know that you could. And, you know, I did live out of the promote, but I, al- I also sat there for long hours in my office going, how am I ever going to build an organization of talented people when I don't have any fee money to pay those people? And I'm living on some, you know, future big lump sum that I hope to get. And, you know, again, if you're if you're first starting out, you might do things differently. But if you look at companies that are now 20, 30, 40, 100 people, they have something that is paying those people. And, and in most of the companies I've ever talked to, it's not the promote. So know where you are in your company and know where you're headed. And even if you're light on fees now or, you know, you're not charging what you think you could, that should be a goal, not so that you're greedy and taking money out of the deals, but so that you can build a sustainable organization that inherently should provide even better returns over the long run. And again, a five-person company will do things differently than a 30-person company. And a 30-person company might do things a little differently than a 100-person company. I would say the differences between a 30-person company and a 100-person company are probably a lot less than a five-person company to a 30-person company. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So we've been talking about fees, and I haven't even gone through you know, what are fees, but if you look at the business as you have an operating company and then you have assets, the operating company, often the general partner, charges fees to the assets for labor that is performed. And there's all different types of labor. And so I charge, you know, said asset a fee for the services that I'm providing it. That fee goes to the operating company. And again, the operating company should be doing things that are helping drive value to the asset. So you charge fees to a real estate asset for services performed. I think, and I'll get into this in a little bit, you know, the real estate industry does a terrible job 
of, you know, specifically operators and GPs of telling people what are behind the fees. You know, I've said often not all fees are created equal. And when you see a deal from an operator, a lot of times it's all of the um, the highlights of that deal itself. But you don't learn very much about, you know, who are the people that are going to be driving these outcomes? What resources does this GP or operator have? What things are they doing differently than the next operator? And so when you hear things like, you know, a 2% asset management fee, well, I would argue a 2% asset management fee from, you know, one operator could look, could be uh, money being used totally different than a 2% asset management fee from another operator. In one case, you might have an operator that's fully vertically integrated and is providing an abundance of services to the asset. And in the other case, you might have an operator that's charging 2%, but they're outsourcing a lot of the day-to-day uh, labor that it takes to you know, operate that asset. So I try to do a better job, and I recommend all GPs do a better job of not just telling people about the deals you're doing, but telling people about the operations behind those deals. Because at the end of the day, it's the operation behind the deal that is going to drive the returns that you're seeing in that deck. And so I challenge all GPs to do a much better job of talking about your operations and quote unquote, what are behind the fees that you're charging? Because it's not all apples to apples. And most of the time when we've had LPs ask us about our fees and they might say, well, you know, so-and-so charges less or they're doing it differently. I'd say, okay, let's talk about that. Here's what we're doing. Is, is the other group doing that? Um, and oftentimes it's, it's different again, not different because it's better or worse, but it's just different. And so people need to understand that one way, and we'll get into this, you know, GPs, especially kind of emerging GPs will often ask me, well, how do we know what we can charge for and what we can't? And it's a, it's a good exercise to go through. But I often tell people, write down all the things that you as the operator are doing for those assets, everything, literally everything you're doing, and then think, okay, are we charging for some of these services or are they free? And if we're not charging for them, somebody would have to be doing the work. So maybe go out to the market and say, well, if, if we're not going to do them or we're going to do them for free but we had to outsource all this to somebody else, what would, what would we be paying third-party providers to do all this work? And what you'll often find is, one, third parties are going to charge a lot more because they're third parties, but also they're not owners. So they're, they don't have the same incentive and ownership mentality than the GP does. And when I've gone through this exercise with people, what you realize is you know, a lot of the folks um, that don't understand how they should charge for their work are doing a lot of free work. And it might be leading to higher returns on the asset, but again, they're subsidizing these assets with free labor. And over the long term, in the event that something were to, you know, the opco were to not be sustainable or the GP had to let people go, they might have to outsource those services now to third parties that could still get the job done. And, you know, this can be as nuanced as, you know, getting ready for tax returns at the end of the year. That takes a lot of time. Are you making enough money to, to support the labor on your team that's helping do that? That could be things like, you know, when you're onboarding an asset to a company, all the software hookups that have to happen, all the transition work that has to happen, somebody's doing that work and are you getting paid for it? You know, marketing tends to be a big one. 
you know, I'll talk to people all the time and I'll say, you know, who paid for the sign, the for lease sign or the for sale sign that's on your property? And they'll say, oh, well, the Opco paid for it. And I would say, okay, but, you know, I realize you paid for it, but the asset needed that to be there. Why does the asset not pay for the for sale sign? And they'll just say, well, you know, I didn't think about it. But at the end of the day, somebody's paying for something. And if you whittled your company down to a one person company and you outsource literally everything, you as the GP would have to be paying someone to do that work. Nobody's going to do it for free. And I don't recommend that the GP should be doing it for free. I'm also not recommending that they charge what third parties would charge, which is likely much higher. They can find a healthy balance. But going through your company again and listing out to the nth degree every little thing you provide and then assigning value to are you charging for that or not, it at least gives you the decision to say, well, maybe we should be charging. Maybe you decide, no, we're just going to keep doing this for free. Or maybe you're going to decide, hey, we're really not good at this, even though we're doing it. We should just outsource this. And then you're going to go get a bid for what it's going to cost to outsource. And once you get that bid, you might think, well, hell, maybe we should just hire somebody internally to do it. We can probably do it for cheaper. We're going to have an ownership mentality. And you kind of work backwards. Because what you'll find most of the time with folks that have not figured out you know, the proper way to set up their organization and charge for their work is they're just doing a lot of free and discounted labor um, that if taken to third parties would not be that way. You know, I'll go through all this and I'll say Fort Capital operated our operating company in the red for a long time. We knowingly were providing services and we were paying people to do those services, even though the fees weren't there yet to cover it. We chose to do that mainly because we wanted to get to scale and be an operating company that uh, owned 100% of the decision-making rights when we got to you know some future destination. A lot of people might sell a piece of their GP or their opco to a capital provider that'll help provide capital along the way. So I'm not sitting here saying that you know just by charging fees you're automatically going to be profitable. We were in the red for a long time, which meant we had to be having activity and generating deals in order to keep the lights on. But the goal all along was how do we get to a sustainable structure? Where our overheads paid for, and then we can put ourselves in the driver's seat to where we're not doing deals because we need to cover overhead. We're doing deals because you know it's the right thing to do and it's something that we like. And we're proud to have gotten there. It took a long time. We made a lot of mistakes along the way, and I would argue we probably operated in the red longer than we should have. But that was a decision that we made, and so that kind of sets the tone for some of the things I'll dive into. But Again, having a profitable uh, operating company that you understand why you're profitable, you understand why you're generating the fees you are, and you're able to communicate that to investors uh, is important. And what I would tell you as it relates to talking to LPs about fee structures is, again, most people never get to that point in the conversation, but most logical GPs, if they're questioning some fee or something that you're working on, can easily digest, oh, wait, this is labor that has to be done. You know, the, if, if I'm not going to let the GP charge for it, they're going to have to outsource it. And it's going to get paid one way or the other. And so, you know, that's a way to kind of start framing how you should think about fees for your business and why having a profitable operating GP entity is important over the long term.
So I'm going to be a little redundant, but now I'm going to go through kind of my notes and how I've thought about this. And these are this is an outline that I've put together over a long period of time. So sorry if some of this is redundant. But again, a GP looks at fees as revenue needed to support their operating company. An LP reasonably can agree with that, but can also think of fees as something eating away at their returns. This is an opportunity for the GP to better explain how the, oper- how the operation is working. In real estate, GPs send investment decks to prospective LPs with deal highlights, performas, comp, structure, business plan, etc. Somewhere in there, there's usually a summary of the fees being charged by the GP. Again, something I rarely ever see is the GP showing some type of org chart or summary of the operating company and its capabilities. There's huge room for improvement here. This is where GPs, Fort included, have an opportunity to not only present the investment opportunity they're buying, but also present the operating company that's handling the investment. At the end of the day, it's people working on stuff that's driving the returns, and it's crazy not to highlight who's driving those returns What is the firm capable of? What technology are they using? Who's on staff and what's their experience? What is the processes that they're going through? What is their cost of capital? What type of vendor relationships do they have? All those things matter in ultimately getting the return at the, getting the return higher and showing more profit at the bottom line. If we can agree on that, here's an example of GP1 that has a large, talented team with experience, track record over 10 years, plenty of resources, technology, great vendor relationships, more buying power, et cetera. And then GP2 is relatively new, smaller staff, lacks technology, doesn't have a lot of great relationships, cost of capital is higher. GP2 will one day be like GP1, it just takes time. They'll only become like GP1 though, if they think about their operating company as a profitable machine that should be built over a long term to develop talent, reinvest in the business, and ultimately drive returns. If each group were to hypothetically execute on the same deal, the difference in returns will come down to execution. Everybody can buy the same deal at the same price. That doesn't mean you're going to have the same outcome five years later. It's what happens in those five years that will ultimately determine execution. And it's why a lot of people might pass on a deal, but somebody else you know, bites on it and it still works out. So just because two different groups, GP1 and GP2, buy the same deal does not mean you're going to have the same outcome. It's all the things I've already talked about that will drive forward the next five years. I know it's 2021 and it's easy to think assets just go up in price, but believe it or not, how you operate has the largest influence on an asset's performance. It's the only thing that you can really control. We cannot control the market. We can't control interest rates. We can't control rent growth, but you can control your operation. And so that's where a lot of attention needs to be focused. And for the millionth time, if you're going to put a lot of focus on your operation, why not have a profitable one that can reinvest in itself and get better over time? If each GP charged, in this scenario, a 1% asset management fee to the deal, I'd argue GP1 is probably undercharging and GP2 is at market or may even be overcharging. GP1 is delivering a superior service to the property, while GP2, while still doing a great job, simply doesn't have the same advantages that one has. Things you might see from GP number one, close vendor relationships and the ability to start work quickly. You know, they might have a job that comes up and they don't have to wait a month to get on the schedule. They can pick up the phone and have a vendor that will be on site performing that job quickly. Why does that matter? Well, it matters if you have a vacancy and you need to get it ready to be leased. 
you know, every 30 to 60 to 90 days that go on, that's returns that are being lost. Again, with a close vendor that you're doing a lot of work with, you might be getting better pricing, better start times, and ultimately better quality of work. GP1 also has purchasing power at the property level to save on CapEx or OpEx. Again, they're doing a lot more, and so they can negotiate better deals. They're probably able to provide cheaper insurance to the property because of their size. A team of tenured professionals who have been in the industry a while, bonus if they've worked together for a while, they're paid well and accountable to the organization. GP1 has the ability to source better debt terms for the property. GP1 has an investor relations team to provide exceptional investor service. GP1 has a deep bench of folks working on executing the business plan. GP1 has a sophisticated technology setup that increases productivity, provides real-time data to team. On top of that, subscriptions to software that provide access to information, deals, comps, forecasting, etc. GP1 probably has an, a professional accounting team that keeps records daily and provides timely quarterly investor statements. They might have a full-time marketing team that's not only marketing the GP, but helping market each asset so that it's known to the market. That would, that would uh, hopefully turn into quicker lease uh, vacancy periods. It would make you know, vacancies more available to be known to the market. It might attract tenants. It, it can do a lot of things. GP1 probably has a finance team dedicated to building lender relationships and also has the team that can service those current loans better and make sure that covenants are being met. They might have a technology team that's building innovative tools so that you can operate better or you can have better data on how to source the next great investment. Again, if you're investing with a GP, you're very often not just investing in one deal. You're hoping to invest in lots of deals with them. They might have a construction management team with deep relationships going, again, back to vendors who can keep quality high and costs in line. They're not outsourcing everything and they're doing this work like owners. And again, I go on and on. They have great relationships with brokers in a submarket. They've been around forever, so they can lease things quicker. They have better market intel. They just have brokers that will bring them information. So maybe GP1 should actually be getting 2% instead of 1%. Would that mean lower returns for the deal? I'd argue absolutely not over the long term. Again, that 2% is paying for an army of services that GP number two might not be providing. And again, over the long run, a slight uptick in fees shouldn't have an overall drastic impact on the deal. GPs uh, that don't charge what they're worth are offering a perpetual discount to their investors, but not necessarily at the sake of higher returns. These GPs are often short-staffed, overworked, and confused on how they can truly get better given the economics they're accustomed to. I mean, I talk to people all the time that can't see the pathway to hire that next person or bonus that next person or invest in that software. And it's often because they're so ingrained in this mindset of charging low fees and, and providing free services and labor to a deal. In other businesses, again, if products are sold to customers at a perpetual discount, you eventually go out of business, or at the very least, you're running a very rough operation. And over the long term, you're not going to get very talented folks that want to show up and work for a team that's constantly struggling to figure out how to make the next step. It's the same in real estate. It should not be looked at any differently. So ways to think about what you should be charging, and I'll go a little more into depth than what I said earlier in the episode. 
But again, if you if you said in this hypothetical situation, here's everything we're doing now, but what we're going to do is we're going to let everybody go and it'll just be the partners and we're going to outsource everything to other people so that we can still perform the same level of service, but we're going to keep you know just a couple partners and we're going to outsource everything, accounting, asset management, construction management, property management, lease audits, just everything. You're going to outsource all that. So you step one, you write down everything you currently provide to assets as a, as a GP. And like I said earlier, think hard and be super detailed. Everything your team is spending time on is something that should be written down. Know your annual revenue that you're collecting to pay your team to provide all those services. That number will be your budget of what you can spend on outsource providers for these same services. Price out all those services with outsource vendors. Step three, now compare the two budgets. Outsource vendors are almost always more expensive and often by a lot. The work has to be done in both scenarios. It's an outsource scenario. Those expenses would have to be charged to the asset. But then you might say, well, then the deal wouldn't work. Okay, well, maybe it wouldn't. And that's something to really take into account. While this may or not be true, for one, it's upon the GP to find a balance somewhere in the middle, a place where you're not charging third-party costs, but you're also not subsidizing free labor. And I would tell you there's a lot of margin in there to find your sweet spot. Now you have a baseline for understanding what you should be charging as a GP. The larger the gap in budgets, the more decisions the GP will have to make. So here's an example. You, you go through this exercise and you realize, you know, we're charging a million dollars a year to service our portfolio. But we went out to the market and if we outsourced all of these things, it would cost two million. Okay, so here's what you're left with. On one end, we can continue charging one million and keep everybody on staff and, and do it how we're doing it. On the other end, we can let everybody go and we would outsource everything, but we would have to be charging the assets two million. I'd argue that even at the $2 million number, you're probably going to run a worse operation with zero cohesion, mainly because third parties will just never be able to, to have that ownership mentality that you would have internally. This is where the GP has to take the facts and rethink what their budget should be based on the services they're providing, but also the services they'd want to provide in the future. So if you're sitting here saying, man, we'd really like to do this as a capability internally down the road, but we don't see a pathway for how we would ever pay for it, this is a good opportunity to start figuring out how you would pay for that service. Go figure out what it costs and then figure out how we would bring that internal, how we would charge for it, who the people would be, et cetera, et cetera. If you're doing everything in-house, the goal is to create the best possible team and operation at a fair cost to investors. One thing I know is that talented, well-paid team members are much less expensive than a less talented, underpaid team. So another thing that you find with a lot of folks is they've hired this organization of what they thought they were doing a, a service by hiring less talented people with not as much skill set and paying them less. While obviously on paper, that's a less expense, but I would tell you the output of that team is much less. And you know, again, I, I don't know the exact figures, but you hear this often in business, a really talented person can often do a lot more than three, you know, not as talented people. Not saying those lower paid people can't one day become talented, but it's a big misnomer in this industry and business in general that by overpaying for talent, you're paying too much. I would argue you probably have way too much overhead with the less talented people 
that you would actually be saving yourself money long-term to hire the, the really talented person and seeing that they could do the job of free people. So really understand your current team and how their time is truly being spent. If you want to hire great people that can deliver an exceptional operation, there needs to be money to pay them. Charging the right fees provides for a talented team operation and a talented team and operation who want to drive returns. Those extra fees to the talented team will be rewarded by operational excellence that creates a lot more value at the asset level than the fees being charged. Again, I hear all the time from GPs that they think of their operating company as a break-even business. I only have one answer to this. It needs to be run as a profit-generating business. The excuse is that they have the promote. Another way of saying that is just telling investors, you know, we're happy running an operation at a low cost or maybe, uh, you know, not even break even, but we're okay paying ourselves uh, our subsidized labor with some future performance bonus. Again, it just doesn't sound logical over the long term. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets, and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Now we can get into some of the actual fees themselves, and I won't go through all of them, but again, there is no right percentage or amount. It's situation dependent. It's operating company dependent. It's GP dependent. How long have you been around? What are you doing differently that that matches up with the fees you're willing to charge? So if we just started with like the acquisition fee, which is a fee paid often to the GP for sourcing or closing on an investment. Some people charge 1%, some people charge 2%, you see 3%. And to sit there and go, well, you know, 1% is better than 3% or, you know, 3% is much higher than 1%. Okay, on paper, that's true. But again, let's talk about what's behind what's being charged. So again, example one, GP number one, has invested in a team that can generate proprietary meaningful insights, both through internal proprietary technology, a process of sourcing true off-market deals, often with zero brokers involved. So they're doing the broker's work a team with an A-plus network, a reputation of building an incredible company uh, to work for during, during closing, due diligence, et cetera. The investment generated by this operation is purchased under market due to the one-on-one negotiation with the seller, and no other fees were paid to the broker. The GP and the acquisition team did all the work. GP number two relies solely on inbound deals from brokers, participates in auctions, does not put any effort into sourcing off market, 
by nature of how they buy, they're comfortable paying more of a market price. There's nothing wrong with that, but the investment is purchased at a higher cost, so returns might be thinner, all things being the same. Based on both those scenarios, again, if you're purchasing the same asset, it doesn't seem very reasonable that each team should be paid 1%. I'd argue that GP1 should get 2% and GP2 should get 1%. Why? Even in this scenario, the added acquisition cost to GP1 still offers a lower all-in basis on the investment, even with the 2% cost. And again, they're charging for the work that brokers would have made in the other situation. So by charging 2%, they're still charging a cost that would have been paid had there been a broker involved, but they chose to do all the work and they should be compensated for that. So 2% can be justified by a better investment and the simple fact that they did the work. GP2, maybe they should just get 1%. There are other brokers involved who are getting paid. Uh, the basis is probably higher because it was a marketed deal. And, you know, GP1 is probably reinvesting some of that acquisition fee to get better over time and incentivizing the right people. And GP2 probably isn't going to have the extra dollars to do that because that's how their operation is set up. So when you're talking about, you know, acquisition fees, whether it's 1%, 2%, again, find out what's behind all that. Often the answer is, that one company is doing a lot more than the other one. And if they're not, okay, maybe that's the time to have a discussion of why are you charging X fee when you're not doing the, you know, all these extra services. A list of a few more fees that you might think about as you grow your company that are fees that are being paid to somebody. You know, at, at any point in time, these are, these are going to be paid to somebody. You, you could have a financing fee. Maybe the GPs opted to have an in-house team focused on sourcing the best possible debt and working with lenders through closing and ongoing. Close relationships and trust are being formed and competitive term sheets are being generated. Or the GP can simply outsource financing to a capital markets broker who will run a similar process to find a lender from their preferred network, not yours. And in that case, they might be charging anywhere from a half a point to a two to 2% to find you a loan. So again, if you're not charging a financing fee, but you're also the one generating all the loans, I would say, again, why are you doing it for free? And if you are going to do it for free, why not just outsource it to a team that's going to charge anywhere from half a point to 2%? That's where the GP can figure out, okay, well, maybe we'll charge 1% for sourcing financing. But in any situation, it's getting paid to someone. And again, if the answer is, well, the GP is going to do it and they're just going to do it for free, you know how I feel about that. If GP goes with option one, shouldn't they be entitled to a financing fee? Again, if they're sourcing the loan, if your answer is no, then a reasonable CEO would say, okay, we'll hire the capital markets broker and pay them instead. We're not going to do free labor. If the answer is yes, it's upon the GP to determine what needs to be charged to cover the overhead for the people they're employing to do the job. In all of these situations, the other thing to, to note is these finance teams that you're hiring, while they might be being paid a fee to source debt, which is often lower than they would be paying to an outsourced capital markets broker, those finance people continue to do things for the asset over the life of the investment that no third-party capital provider or capital markets broker is going to do. So the fee can often be less than what the broker would charge, but still profitable to the operating company. And that financing person is going to be working on that loan 
throughout its maturity and throughout the life of the deal. Uh, they are going to constantly be in the market looking at you know refinance opportunities if that situation arises. But you're going to have somebody that's dedicated to that loan, not just at that one-time fee when the deal closes, but throughout the life of the deal. And more often than not, they're not charging for that all along. So while it might be a one-time financing fee, that fee is, is used to pay for that person over a much longer period than just sourcing and closing the deal. You know, you, again, I'm not going to go through the in-depths of everyone, but you have accounting fees. There needs to be revenue generated to pay for the accounting team. The alternative is to outsource all your accounting to somebody else. LPs should want great books and want detailed books. And again, I would argue that building an in-house accounting team that's working on the accounting every day, knows the assets really well, is better. So finding out what you should charge for that, again, go through the process above, but that's something that you should be being paid for in some shape or form, or it should be outsourced. Things that accountants do besides just the, the you know, day-to-day accounting of properties, uh, they're accounting for the operating company, they are spending a lot of time to get investor financials ready, they are spending time getting ready for tax returns and K-1s, and they're a huge part of a, any real estate operation. The accounting team actually grows probably quicker than any other team once you start getting to scale. Software. People all the time buy all this software, and while the software is sole purpose is to provide value to the asset, the GP is the only one paying for it. And if you can make an argument that you know some property is better run because of the software that it's able uh, to use, then a portion of that software should be billed back to the asset. Again, alternatively, if not, then just outsource that function of the business to somebody else who's going to have that same software probably, and they will be billing for it. So, you know, again, something like CoStar, where you're, you know, you're using CoStar to research and and uh, look at comps and everything, you might not charge that to the asset because the asset, once you've purchased it, it's going to function well, whether you have CoStar or not. But accounting software, property management software, forecasting software, investor relations software, all those things are helping generate value at the asset level. And some portion of them, in my opinion, should be being billed uh, to the asset so that the GP, uh, again, can run a healthy business. And again, if a GP is being questioned on it, the logical answer would be, well, the, the asset needs the software to run efficiently. We actually have less overhead to the asset because we're using this software, which should be creating efficiency. LP, if you don't want Fort Capital or you know whatever GP to be charging for that software, then we're more than happy to allocate that portion of the business to a third party who will be charging for it. Again, there's no third party on earth that's going to be doing free work. Um, and you find out, and that's a very sobering moment when you start realizing what you're not charging for and what other people will charge for. And I could go through all the different types of fees, but those were kind of three examples of things that I often see, you know, emerging GPs are not charging for. They're seeing that, you know, their expenses at the Opco GP level are high and they don't know how to pay for them because the assets are not paying for any of this. You need to understand what the asset should be paying for and what the GP should be paying for. I wasn't, I'm not going to go through all the list of fees. And again, I kind of broke things out you know, software, you're very likely not going to see a software fee 
on a deck. That's probably going to roll up under what are the common fees, which are asset management, construction management, property management, maybe financing. But in all of those kind of, you know, big fee line items, there's often lots of services that roll up under one fee. So an asset management fee, while you can look at it as, you know, asset management 2%, there, there's lots of little services that roll up under that. So, um, you know, again, your uh, property management fee might be inclusive in that is something you're charging for the software that the property manager is providing to the asset. So I'm not sitting here saying that you should have a list of, you know, 100 fees that you're showing investors. They're all going to roll up into kind of your main line items, but breaking each of those out so you don't just see asset management you know, at the GP level, you don't just see asset management 2%. Understand what are all the things that you're doing that are rolling up into that 2%. And that will help you get to where you need to be as a company. All this to be said, fees matter, but not all fees are apples to apples. Buying a Ferrari is not the same as buying a Kia. Each has a different value proposition. With all this said, take into account that the ambitions of GPs differ. The perfect size is in the eye of the beholder. Of all the examples I gave, my intention was not to portray that one was right and one was wrong. The intent was to lay out the value proposition coming from each and how paying for that should be thought about. The top quartile of GPs are able to charge fees that match their value proposition and still deliver higher long-term returns. They can do this by affording the resources needed to build an exceptional team and operation. So remember, as a GP, tell the story of what your operation has to offer. LPs will have a greater perspective of what they're paying for and the value they're getting. Real estate private equity at the end of the day, I think should be called for a lot of companies, you know, real estate private equity operators. There's a big difference in fees charged to allocate capital to GPs versus fees charged by GPs who actually operate. And again, I didn't go into that in here. It's kind of inherent and should be understood. You know, when you hear, oh, well, they're charging, you know, 2% on assets under management. Well, there's a lot of, you know, real estate private equity firms that raise capital just to provide capital to other operators. They're not actually operating the asset themselves. A 2% asset management to that company is a lot different than a 2% asset management to a real estate operator that also buys their own deals and then ongoing operates them. So understanding that is huge. And again, that's a that's a kind of rounding out the idea that understanding what is making up the fees and understanding the operation behind those fees and the justification for those fees is really important because not all companies are equal and, and certainly the services that they provide and the capability to provide those services are equal. And that's on, upon the LP to understand. And once you understand that, it's it should be much clearer not only for the GP to know their business, but for LPs to know why they might be paying one GP 1% for asset management versus another company 2%. I'll end this rant by saying something I've I've been, you know, I've said multiple times, but charging the right structure of fees for your business is ultimately what's going to be able to help you build the operation that you want to have. And an operation is built up of people doing things. And in order to attract great talent and let them do what they're most talented of, there needs to be money to pay them. So fees generate revenue, and that revenue is used to build a great operation. It's upon you to figure out where you are in your company 
and what revenue you need to generate to build the team that you ultimately want to have. And even if you've been doing things the same way for a long time and you think, well, I couldn't possibly take the next deal out to our investors with this new fee in it or an increased fee in it, I would really challenge yourself and say, why are you doing that? Are you doing that because you're scared, because you haven't done it in the past and you're afraid of what LPs might say? Or are you doing it because you've made a logical decision that that's what's best for the company? As you grow and as Fort Capital grew, we started layering in fees for things that we never charged for before. Often, you'll get asked from LPs that have been with you a while, hey, I saw something new pop up on the P&L statement. Let's talk about it. And that's, again, a perfect opportunity to say, yes, let's talk about it. Here's why we're charging it. Here's what we've realized. And ultimately, it should come back to you, the LP, as a positive return over the lifetime. If an LP is simply going to you know, put their heels in the ground after explaining your, your logic, then that's a decision for you to make. But I have found that the best LPs are able to fully understand where we're coming from if something seems new or, or a, a charge has gone up. But it's up to us to generate those same returns. If our higher fees are the only thing that's causing deals to now not perform the way we thought, then we're not using those fees and the talent that we're using to pay with those fees to you know the best of our possibility. And that's going to impact us over the long term. So we're not going to stay in business long term by just charging more fees, but not getting the returns out of them. So they both have to work. But again, I'll say it for the last time. I think over the long term, your fees or your returns will go up even as what you charge might go up because the team and the operation behind those fees is getting better and better. And the best teams in the world generate the best outcomes. And so if your goal is to build an amazing team and organization and culture that can drive great returns to assets, they need to be paid for. And they do not need to be paid for out of a performance bonus that you got down the road for all the subsidized labor you did in the meantime. Now I'm going to go through just a few kind of Twitter questions that came up. I'll try and get to some of them and then we'll bring it home. One of the questions is just an example of a deal we've done and how the fee dollars are allocated. I won't go through everything, but I will tell you the way we think about the acquisition fee on a deal is uh, how was it sourced? What other brokers are being paid? What work did we do? Is the fee in line with what would have been paid had we you know, had another broker that we were paying? If we did all the work, um, should we be getting paid for that? Does the increase in fee, if we did all the work, materially change the deal? Or can we look at an LP in the eye and say, even by charging, call it a 2% acquisition fee, our basis is still much less than had we bought the deal you know, through a marketed process where other brokers were being paid, where often more than 2% would have been paid total, even at a higher price. So that's how we think about acquisitions. Asset management, you know, Fort Capital raises, we raise all of our equity. We do not go to a third-party group to raise money on our behalf. And so our asset management fee is often a percentage of equity raise. It's not based on revenue of the asset. And again, any company that is raising money on your behalf is charging an ongoing fee on equity. And since we provide that service, that's how we like to think about how we calculate that fee. Financing is the same. 
a lot of deals we finance on our own and we will charge a financing fee for that. Alternatively, there's several deals that we do not source a loan on. And in that case, the fee is being uh, charged to a third party group for getting us that loan. So if we're going to charge one, we better have done the work. And if we're not going to charge one, then there's somebody else talented that did the work. But either way, it's getting paid for. Property management. Property management is often a percentage of revenue. And as the assets get larger and the complexity of managing those assets, you might also have an administrative line, which is a flat fee uh, on top of a percentage of revenue. You would see a flat fee if there are actual employees that are dedicated to just that asset, or that could be a technician, that could be an on-site property manager, that could be lots of different things. So we think of property management that way. There is you know, I, I didn't talk about a refinancing or a disposition fee. Again, it's as, it's deal by deal dependent. But if we do a refinance, which can take a lot of time, we have the option to outsource that refinancing process to somebody else, or we can do it internally. Uh, how we charge for it, again, is deal dependent, but we're looking at, well, are we going to do the work? Or are they going to do the work? You know, disposition fee often gets mentioned. Disposition fee, you know, if even if you're hiring brokers, there is a lot of work that goes into selling deals. Now, if you're just own a duplex or something small and, and it's something that you know you're listing online and you're selling, that's different than when you're so- selling a large portfolio of seven different buildings with hundreds of tenants that are that the sale process is going to require a ton of work and effort through the due diligence process, a lot of asking uh, and answering questions. And so you would say, you know, should you be charging for all that time to go to sell an asset? Again, I think you know how I feel about that. But again, it all boils back to, you know, what services are we providing? Is it materially impacting the deal? Is it just something egregious or is it services that are being provided that somebody else would charge for? And so that's, again, kind of the way we think about deals. The fee structures could change based on the type of deal, the amount of work that actually has to be done. You know, a heavy value add deal is much different than buying, you know, a Walgreens with one tenant that's going to be leased for 25 years and you're basically collecting a rent payment each month where the tenant is, you know, it's a full triple net deal where they're doing their own maintenance work and they're doing everything. You're literally just collecting a check versus a value add deal where you might have 50 tenants. You're having to do a ton of CapEx work to the building. You're doing a lot of retenanting a lot of work. Those are two different kind of property management, asset management scenarios, and you should charge accordingly. Again, they're not apples to apples. So that's how we kind of think about some of the the bigger fees. You know, again, didn't get into construction management, but if we're providing construction management uh, and we are, you know, self-performing as the GP, we're trying to find a percentage that's fair to the investor, but fair to our team. Alternatively, we'll outsource all the GC work and it's often at a much higher cost. It's done slower. And, you know, that that's because owners tend to do things, you know, differently than third-party providers. And I think it's a, a perfect time to say, Third-party providers are amazing. We work with them all the time. And I'm not sitting here saying that by paying them more or, you know, they're not as good. It's just anybody that understands the idea that, you know, an owner will do things and jump through hoops that a third-party 
won't do. That should just be inherent. Owners just do things differently and they have a lot more, you know, at stake. And so I have always opted to invest with GPs where the owner is doing a lot of the work because I know that they have a lot more skin in the game. And if they are third-partying it out, wanting to know what that relationship is like and and why they've chosen to go that path. So, you know, there there could be times where you should be outsourcing something that you're doing internally, even if you can charge for it, because it's ultimately better for the asset. Even by paying more to a third-party vendor, they might have a skill set that they're providing that even by paying more, it's still better for the asset than you know, a GP trying to do it, even though they're charging less, they don't have the resources and capabilities on that team to do what the third party could do. So again, there is no right way to do it. It's just understanding where you are, where the third party is, what you're charging, what they're charging, and ultimately what's going to be best for the asset. Because what's best for the asset is ultimately going to be what's best for returns and what's best for the LP. Next question. This, this gets brought up often. I think it's a good question. Can an established sponsor uh, with capital charge an acquisition fee that's equal to their contribution? Again, this question has nuance. This has a, a lot to do with where you are in your company life cycle. So if you're a you know a one or two, three person team or something small, and you know, let's say you're putting in a half a million into a deal as a GP from the equity but your acquisition fee is also half a million. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. Again, you have to justify why your acquisition fee is half a million, but the overhead's a lot lower. And so a lot of LPs will say, you know, they just have this mentality that, oh, well, the owner is just taking that acquisition fee and using it as their equity. That's a lot easier to kind of do when the company's small and overhead's really low. Again, I'm not saying that they should or shouldn't be doing it. They should be able to justify why they're doing it, why they're able to charge a half a million dollar acquisition fee and they're only putting half a million into the deal. You know, again, if they found it off market, got a great deal, did the work of the brokers, everything else, okay, I'm fine with it. But I think the bigger thing that, that I don't think is fully understood is as the company gets larger, you know, even if what the owner is putting into the the deal is similar to what the acquisition fee is, I have not met any GPs that are using their acquisition fee as their equity. That acquisition fee, you know, I haven't seen an acquisition fee come into my wallet in years. That acquisition fee is going into the company to pay the people who did the work, used as reinvestment in the business. Again, an acquisition fee also isn't just paying the one person that found the deal. On these, as companies get bigger and as deals get bigger and more complex, there are an army of people that work on acquisitions. There's your finance team. There is, again, your acquisition team. There are analysts. There's your due diligence team that's performing all the due diligence. And, you know, maybe I should have said this earlier, but again, if, if you're buying small assets and doing a couple deals, it's much different than when you're doing deals at scale. But that acquisition fee pays for the folks that did the due diligence, that helped with the transaction, that set up all of the uh, due diligence third party line items that, you know, helped underwrite the deal, that uh, helped set up all the accounting to get that property ready for accounting. There's a lot of ways that that acquisition fee is used to pay the team, and it's not all to one person. 
And I can sit here and say, as, as me at Fort Capital, but I share this with a lot of people I know in the industry, it sure as hell is not going into my pocket to be used as my equity into the deal. I don't ever see that money. Now, ultimately, if the business is profitable at the, the end of the year, I might see some of it, but we continue to reinvest. So, you know, you really have to understand the situation, why it's being charged. And I would just, you know, really highly um, emphasize that at a company that has a large platform and team, the acquisition fee is not going to the owner's pocket to be used as their down payment. It's being used to pay for the operation. It's being used to pay for the team that helped with the acquisition, which is a company gets larger is a lot of people. And so, again, understand the situation, ask the uh, GP why they're charging what they're charging. And it's all, it's ultimately upon you to get comfortable with that. You know, somebody asked how our fees have changed uh, since we started to now. I kind of went through this. They, they asked when scaling and hiring, did you run into cash flow issues where the fees weren't enough at the beginning to support the employees? On our end, the answer is yes. You know, fees changed as we grew. As we added more services and capabilities, we started to charge for those. And and to be fair, we didn't do it right out the gate. We we still didn't know that we could, and we did a lot of free labor. But it was lots of you know long nights and hard discussions, going like, how the hell are we ever going to hire the next person or invest in the next software if we don't have cash? That we went through the process of going, okay, we could just outsource all this, and it's still going to get paid for. And 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 how can we build a team to where we can charge for it? Uh, often at a much better cost than than a third party provider would, but we could we could see a forecast of okay if we start doing these things and we start charging for these things then we have a way to pay for it, you know as it relates to Fort Capital, I have very big dreams. Uh, our CEO Jason has very big dreams for the company, and so for a lot of years we were doing what you see in a lot of startup like deals where. You know, in the tech world, it's perfectly normal to, you know, just burn through cash and run at losses to have a future profit one day. I'm not saying we did that at all, but we continued to keep investing in people and systems ahead of we were hiring and paying for things ahead of where we were because we knew where we were going. Again, I'm not saying there, you know, we couldn't have probably gotten a profitability sooner than we did, but we had a mindset of grow and build the team that we want, not the, you know, build the team that we want five years from now, but start now. We understood that we would be in the red. We understood why we would be in the red, but we also understood what it would take to get us out of the red. And so we, we at least had a very good understanding of where we stood, whether that meant we were profitable or not is indifferent. We at least understood why we weren't profitable and understood why that was okay for us. Uh, we had big dreams. We wanted to hire talent. And again, you often hear people say, well, you know, I'm going to hire that person when I have the income to get or the fee income to hire that person. And I would reverse the question and challenge that person and say, are you ever actually going to become the company and have the money to hire that person if you don't start thinking about things differently now? So certainly things change as we went. We only charge for the capabilities we were able to provide. Even if we were able to provide them, we only charged for those capabilities if we felt like we could do it as well as a third party. And um, again, we had kind of a roadmap that lined up with, okay, we understand why we're in the red because we chose to hire 
this person, you know, a year in advance, but we felt like a year later after hiring them, we should be in the green because they were on our team. And, you know, I haven't said this on this podcast, but I've said it on many other episodes. You will change your life and your business when you start thinking of people as assets that generate profit for your company. And then if you think of them as expenses that take away from it, you know, I could sit here today and tell you at 27 people or wherever we're at now, we're more profitable than we've ever been. Why? Because we have great talent and great talents capable of generating uh, great outcomes. So, you know, really challenge yourself there. Okay, I'll go through one more, which was on third-party management and leasing versus uh, vertically integrating. Early in our company uh, life, we chose to do property management leasing. Uh, we did not have a lot of assets at the time. And therefore, again, this was at a point where I was not in the mindset that we are today. So, you know, we weren't able to hire great talent. We didn't really know what the hell we were doing. And we were doing these services. We probably weren't doing them as great as we could. And we certainly weren't making any money by doing property management. You know, we cut that off in like 2014 or 15. And our uh, deal that we kind of made, uh, you know, Jason and I was, we really want to be in this business, uh, but we're not going to do it until we get to a portfolio size that with what we were paying third-party managers for leasing and management, we could bring it in-house and overnight have a profitable business unit and hire the talent that we needed to do it. And so we went four or five years without doing any property management. We third-partied all of it. And then as soon as we got to a spot where we knew if we take all of our assets back in-house, we can build a really good team. Uh, it'll be profitable day one. We chose to do that. That was in, we made the decision in middle of 2019. Uh, we launched at the beginning of 2020. And we launched with a, you know, a five or six person team that was fully capable. We hired that team ahead of time so that by the time we started onboarding assets, they, they were familiar with our company. And ultimately, now it's a very profitable part of our business, uh, not just dollar-wise profitable in the sense that we now have better data, we have better relationships with our tenants, we have better negotiating and purchasing power for operating expenses and CapEx, but we chose to leave property management um, to third parties until we could do it profitably. Leasing, we do not do our own leasing still. We believe in our asset class and industrial that hiring the best leasing agents in certain sub-markets is much better than um, in-house leasing. And we'll probably forever do that. We have no, no ambitions of bringing leasing in-house. All right. You guys have heard me rant for a while. Uh, again, this is something I'm really passionate about. would love to hear from you if there's something that I said that you agree with or disagree with. At the end of the day, my message is that building an exceptional company, an exceptional operating company, uh, should be the goal of anybody that uh, charging the right amount of fees uh, to pay for that team is worthwhile. And that for those GPs and Opco's investors, aka LPs, they should have um, a much better experience and higher returns over the long run with a GP that is profitable, that charges what they're worth and knows why they're charging what they're charging. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey and I will see you next week. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.